So how are you, Sima? Thanks for being with me. Uh, thanks for inviting me. I'm fine, thanks. Um, so it's you're been in, quite a whirlwind of a year, but yes, good. A whirlwind of a year and also a whirlwind of the past, I guess, few weeks, right? Or several weeks in terms of the festivals. I mean, you said you're, are you in the UK currently? Yes, so I'm in the UK. I did not get a chance to travel to uh, all the festivals where I, my film Sandstorm won yeah. an award. Yeah. Unfortunately, um, a lot of the festivals in the States and North America don't cover uh, flights, hotels or anything. So it's just not feasible, realistic to travel around the world constantly and you know yeah. not focus on anything um, on hand. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, uh, it was really good news in August because the film had been traveling since um, Venice. That's September 2021. Right. So we were coming up to a year and we actually thought that, you know, we were done with Sandstorm in the sense that it had been to Venice and it had been to Sundance. And yeah. we'd done some great festivals, AFI and many others and we thought we were okay kind of done with it and now um the news of getting uh the top jury award at uh, Flickrfest Rhode Island yeah. and at Holly Shorts in the same week right kind of changed um our Everything. perspective on like what's possible with this film now so yeah. we are really um excited at the prospect of being um eligible for the Oscars well, that also coincided that when the latter coincided with the 75th Independence Day anniversary, right, of Pakistan. So was that was that a significant sort of pillar that coincided with the win? Uh, yes. I mean, that was just a wonderful coincidence. Uh, we were very proud. And I think Pakistani newspapers really went crazy over it because Abid, <laughs> the producer, Abid Merchant, yeah. He, uh, you know, also has a gallery and produces other things and, and the media do follow him. And therefore, yeah, it kind of went a little out of hand. And I personally wouldn't have told anyone like the eligibility, of course, is on, you know, alongside 200 other filmmakers. <laughs> so it's not such a big deal. Um, but uh just the fact that it was, you know, the anniversary yeah. of independence and then Abid was very proud and he kind of linked these two things, like the success of the film and us on the international stage and and the independence. Uh, so that was all sweet. And the newspapers went a bit crazy and then people started congratulating me for things like <laughs> that hadn't happened yet. So... Uh, but that's how things, you know, are hyped uh, sometimes yeah. in in the press. So yeah. But then you also, I want to talk about that because the um, you mentioned, you know, you you shot it with um, one collaborator that you worked with, and you've worked with them before is Abid Aziz Merchant. But you also worked with them on. Uh, didn't you also work with them on the script, like Haven of Hope? That was it, Ken. Yes. Now, Sandstorm was our first collaboration. I met Avid at Locarno Open Doors, which is a professional development program um, at, you know, Locarno, one of the oldest festivals in Europe. Yeah. And uh, funny enough, we're both from Karachi uh, hmm. and uh, we professionally met, you know, properly met in a professional uh, circumstance. Um, and then um, if we, our first collaboration was Sandstorm. Short film Sandstorm was our like it was it was a test to see how we could work together and whether we would work. I mean, Abid knows he's uh, you know kind of uh, he knows as a businessman that short films don't really make money and or or any kind of a profit, and it's really a portfolio making exercise for the filmmakers. So this portfolio exercise was actually to see our collab to see how we could work together on more ambitious uh, feature films in the future, which have a you know kind of opportunity to make um, profit and go to cinemas worldwide um, and uh, you know locally in Pakistan. So yeah, and then Haven of Hope uh, came much later. I mean, after I had been. Um, after Sandstorm had been accepted into Venice and we knew the festival was you know, going to happen, I had at the same time applied to uh, Venice Benali Cinema College for mm. um, Haven of Hope. And it went through the first round of the workshop. We did not get the funding. It's a micro budget scheme for anyone who doesn't know. And um, only four films out of 12 uh, you know, pre-selections are 
fun, fully financed on a, yeah. on a micro budget and they have to make it within seven months. And my project was a little too ambitious and, uh, you know, really not that low budget. So we moved on to other labs, you know, Torino Lab, Purdue, so, and then eventually ended up at La Fabrique in Cannes this year. Um, yes, May 22. And uh, there, I think it really opened up some, uh, you know, great uh, opportunities and doors that had been closed to me before. For example, finding a French producer within those 10 days. And, right. um, you know, and th- in those days, we also got the news that Sandstrom was sold to Canal Plus, which is a huge mm, right. bonus. I didn't expect a Pakistani, my, my little Pakistani short film to... Yeah you know, have a TV release in France. So so all the French producers were quite were quite impressed with that. Yeah. And then we got the news uh, on the second day being in Cannes was that Rotterdam Hubert Balls Fund, um, we got that for development script and project development uh, for Haven of Hope, which is a feature. So that also, you know, got lots of people interested, including French, uh, Dutch, and French producers. So, so you know, that kind of uh, opened up sure. great and new possibilities for uh, for my first feature, still in development. Of course, it takes years to uh, develop and finance a feature. Well, that's so, incredible, and uh, congrats on all your your success with Standstorm. I mean, in terms of um, you know, in terms of going from the idea, I mean, I think you you mentioned somewhere that I read that you were kind of inspired by a story of an Egyptian, was it an Egyptian teenager that kind of filmed a video of herself dancing? And then was that, did that kind of lead to your exploration of themes like blackmail and wanting to kind of portray that on screen? Yes. So when I came across that article, I think her name was uh, Gadir Ahmed. I'm mm-hmm. not sure if I'm pronouncing it properly. Um, when I came across that article, I was, you know, the fir- the first thing that struck me, I, of course, wanted to watch the video, which was on the BBC yeah. at that time, because it, al- it already had gone viral. She had already been shamed. Uh, and I think the boy had already been punished. Mm. And so I just wanted to, I was curious to see, you know, what it is and, and how, you know, Muslim girls are perceived and how, what res- constrictions, restrictions, sorry, they have. Um, what restrictions they have, you know, uh, in terms of social life and what they can do publicly or not. And then I went on to explore, you know, kind of um, uh, making friendships online in the Muslim world and Mm. otherwise. So I, you know, uh, got in touch with also young people who were like meeting uh, people on video games that they had, you know, avatars on video games that they oh, really? you know, and that was really like fascinating that, yeah. you know, um, it's beyond like online dating and stuff. It's just like you meet an avatar, you, you, you play games with them and then you, you know, a friendship develops and then sooner or later you may or may not meet them in real life oh, and wow. then find out that they could be, I don't know, an old man or anybody. Yeah. Um, so uh, I also discovered uh, revenge porn stories, very sad ones where, mm-hmm. you know, women in Italy had committed suicide. I think oh, wow. exactly two, three weeks ago, a 17-year-old girl in Canada committed suicide um, after, you know, I don't know if it was a threat or something to do with an image online of her, like, you know, equivalent of what yeah. is considered revenge porn. Uh, and, you know, these suicides were really alarming to me because I, you know, although I was researching, you know, my focus was like a Muslim world in Pakistan and the Muslim experience growing up in that kind of a world. But uh, what surprised me is that the shame associated with the female body is yeah. um, is unfortunately, uh, you know, everywhere. It's, uh, it's widespread. And even cultures where you have tiktok and teenagers dancing in bikinis or whatever online and you have you know kind of all kinds of film and media where you know women's bodies are quite exposed um and that really surprised me and i you know again it i really thought a lot about like how women perceive their own bodies and how shame is associated with um with uh you know sexual acts as well but also just the body the you know it's so strange anyway so sandstorm was uh more like once i got in touch with um actors and started auditioning i realized that um 
I knew it, but it was a confirmation or reaffirmation that, that, you know, the mothers of the teenagers, female teenagers who were coming in for the auditions, they were coming in together with their mothers and the mothers were saying, you know, my daughter will uh, dance, but yeah. you know, does she have to do it in front of camera or if she does it in front of the camera, do you really have to decide what she wears? Oh, does she yeah. have to wear a slip or, you uh-huh. know, like, and then, um, you know, they say things like, you know, although we are open-minded and our daughters do know how to dance uh, and act, but, you know, we live in a society which is unforgiving. Mm. And that really stayed with me in the sense that, you know, I knew that it it is uh, kind of, we are in a conservative yeah. society in Pakistan, but, you know, in cities, you know, in weddings, people dance and things are different, but it depends on family to family and depends on um, class and uh, rural areas are very different. There's much more uh, restrictions and it's much more conservative. Depends on, you know, on the Western side towards Afghanistan, it's even more so. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was really, uh, you know, strange. And then uh, my lead actor and her mother and uh, yeah, her parents. So I did show them the dance scene, you know, which mm. is very, you know, kind of timid in, in Western standards. And at one point, even one of my executives, British executives, he was like, you know, what's the big deal? What is this yeah. really about? And yeah. uh, and then it was a wonderful tension by then. And after Vanessa Sundance and everything, you know, they even got to know better, you know, what I, you cannot basically, how can you talk about a subject without uh, visually depicting it? Yeah on screen when it's a visual medium that you are working with, right? So editors and other colleagues that, you know, how much of the girl do we show? Do we show her hips? Uh, She, you know, be wearing this underneath or, you know, is it Mm -hmm. see-through and is it vulgar? Is it not vulgar? And all these things, these are dilemmas. Um, And then, you know, am I taking the role of the male directors uh, that have, uh, you know, kind of without thinking for about a hundred years shown the female body as they pleased? And that was also, uh, you know, more of a responsibility, I think. And uh, so all of these things, uh, you know, we had to be careful about. And then what was a nice surprise was in the in the West, in Canada, in America, in France and countries like that, where you, you know, don't, I didn't think people would understand this, uh, you know, I think I thought that they would say, what's the big deal? It's a little dance. Maybe she's exaggerating. Uh-huh. But what surprised me was like, French colleagues and people were coming up to me and saying, look, it's not about whether she is revealing her body or whether she's dancing very vulgarly. It's really about, um, did she have trust with the person that she was speaking to? And then how does she lose control of her image? Uh, you know, once it's on to someone else and that is real and true to anyone using the internet today. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so that, uh, you know, I think that was the kind of reason that it, uh, resonated with, uh, worldwide audiences. Yeah, no, it, it definitely did. So then, um, I mean, going back a little bit, I mean, was this always the plan to be a filmmaker, to be a writer and to be a director? I mean, where did you, um, what was your upbringing? Like, where did you grow up? So I grew up in Pakistan. Uh, As a child, I wanted to be an artist or a teacher. So I did do those things. My BA was in fine art and uh, painting, but also like I'm experimenting with uh, photography and media, different media, including uh, eight millimeter film in those days. And then, um, and then I did study, you know, masters in filmmaking. Right. So, and in the meantime, I had many other kind of avenues of political activism and other things. Uh, visual anthropology, I did part-time right. course. And, uh, you know, I think the activism kind of inspired me really to to hone it down to film because we were filming our friends being arrested after, you know, doing like anti-GM crop protests or something like that, anti-war protests. And then the filming itself was an act, um, an evidence against the police for uh, sometimes um, illegally, uh, you know, carrying out arrests, for example. Mm. 
And uh, so, you know, just the handy cam in the hand, in, you know, was, yeah. was like the first weapon <laughs> yeah. uh, of defense. And then that uh, the interest, you know, I could have I could have got into documentary, but I wanted um, because of having a fine art background, I wanted a more incorporating art form, which which incorporates, you know, like uh, performance and uh, photography and mm. uh, many different light and uh, you know the word meaning you know literature it, it incorporates so many different things that I thought okay I would like something more challenging that could right. keep my interest uh literally for the rest of my life uh, you yeah. know whereas I tend to get bored easily from um even you know well painting or doing something um do you paint else. I still paint. Yes. Wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you did yeah. eventually, you did eventually make the, you know, dogs. I mean, Zahida, I think is a masterpiece and I definitely want to talk about that. But when you were, um, when you were studying and you were seeing the, I guess, socio-political, you know, conscious, uh, impact of film, I mean, did you always know, did you always kind of, um, were there certain films like out, outside of that, that you also were interested in? Like, were there certain filmmakers that kind of drew you into their films that inspired you? Or was it, was it strictly like making using film as a medium really to make an impact in, in the world? I went through many phases, actually. So there was a phase of political activism when, when we didn't like journals taking photos of us or making videos of us because uh -huh. we thought it could incriminate us, mm -hmm. for example. And then there was a phase where I didn't watch TV because I thought it was boring and <laughs> <laughs> and I yeah. didn't like to be the passive viewer. I wanted to be the right. active instigator in, in the world that we live yeah. in, and be politically involved in my immediate surroundings. I didn't want right. to be the, you know, champagne socialist or or online um, <laughs> kind of sitting in my seat at home. So it was a very active thing. We were out and about in meetings and protests and organizing on the streets, mm -hmm. mostly in London. But sometimes I have taken part in, you know, one of the largest protests uh, when it was um, the Iraq anti-Iraq war and 10 million people, uh, you know, marched together on one day. Oh, wow. So things like that. Um, you know, informed uh, it, and the at film school, I got in. I got inspired by world cinema, and that was the first time I saw you know Italian neorealist films and mm. very specific kind of, uh, for example, Iranian art house films oh. um, that I had seen one or two before but this was like you know this was like an education where we discussed you know what's possible and how to tell stories in a different way but what in, what really struck with me was that Iranian culture was so similar to Pakistani culture and unfortunately in Pakistan we were only watching Bollywood and Hollywood mm. and uh, Iran Iranian culture and language was you know completely there is an embargo and we, we can't import anything there and it's something mm -hmm. political I think yeah. and uh, so you know I thought okay actually in Pakistan in literature in the arts and many other things we embrace tragedy that's the bottom mm. line whereas uh, and uh, whereas Indians don't necessarily, I mean, you know, they have oh, color and music and other things. And Iranian culture, uh, you know, again, in their poetry, in their in their literature, in their arts, they also embrace tragedy. And so we are close in that way. And that, in terms of drama and, uh, you know, tragedy and writing and the kind of stories I had, you know, in I had been kind of grown up with in Pakistan that, you know, it clicked that actually this is what I can do. Tell stories from my home country, you know, from my uh, early experiences that, that no one is doing in that kind of language, yeah. like art house cinema. And, you know, yeah. even now, even in Cannes and London, if I mention art house to producers, they like get a little nervous and think, oh, this is not <laughs> going to make any money. Yeah, exactly, yeah. time. Um, and then, you know, some Japanese um, post-war films, again, you know, The mm. Insect Woman and like strange films oh, wow. that were really dark and, uh, coming from you know the tragedy of the Second World War and yeah. um, Germany Year Zero, Bicycle Thieves, films mm. like that. 
um, and then in terms of Iranian films, it was like um, Mahmal Bas, um, A Moment of Innocence mm. is one of my all-time favorite films because the filmmaker uh, revisits his past when he was a political activist as a teenager and he had stabbed a policeman wow. and he had spent four years in prison, apparently, that's what I read. Um, and in the film, he revisits a younger self of the director and a younger policeman uh, version they meet wow. to, to change the past. Oh, interesting. Wow. So I was like blown away yeah. at what film can, you know, you can do something in fiction that is beyond your yeah. control in reality. Yeah. And I thought, wow. And then maybe I didn't answer your question earlier about, um, you know, I film ultimately I realized that my personality being very versatile and very fairly social, it suits me to choose a medium, which is also young and young mm. as in only a hundred years old compared to painting, yeah. which is the oldest. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, it is evolving. It is exciting. Uh, there's more possibilities. And so it suited my personality to choose something like this. Um, and, uh, then, you know, developing a language took a long time, struggling with like every day, you know, kind of hustling and, uh, trying to make ends meet took a long yeah. time. I, I left film school like in 2011. So, you know, I've, I've made many, like more than 10 short docs as a producer, yeah. director, writer, and camera woman. I did, you know, lots of things like that. And, um, and now I'm thinking if I had made a feature 10 years ago, the language would have been very different. And now I think I've come to a point where my film language in practice has evolved. So you could like one thing, you can love a kind of a film or a kind of a director, yeah. but to make a kind of a film that right. is true to your own um, self is, is something else. You know, I'm not even talking about imitating a style. I'm just talking about being true to the story and oneself, uh, you know, and that takes a lifetime. It's, yeah. it's not an easy uh, thing. So, so, you know, I think practicing and working with other filmmakers, producing other people's works also got me, gave me a chance to keep on uh, honing my own uh, style. Well, when and you I were... think Sandstrom was, uh, was a chance to kind of, finally put it on the stage sorry oh yeah yeah no you do no definitely i, I definitely would uh, agree with that so when you're getting you're studying you're getting your b in fine art and you're studying visual anthropology and then film school and i think i believe you did a fellowship as well right so when you're doing all these um you know you're taking on all these endeavors your mind is getting blown by all these different films you mentioned italian films the that neorealist movement uh the iranian art house movement that you know uh my path is different and i have good intentions yeah um, okay that's diplomatic even, yeah even now you know i would be cautious of doing like explicit scenes on film but i'm not like, interested in that kind of thing you know but you mean like sex scenes or really hyper violent scenes things like that exactly and and i'm not i don't even consume that kind of yeah. uh, you know cinema so i don't relate to it i don't get it i don't yeah. understand why it has to be explicitly anything um yeah. i think the beauty of cinema and poetry is the less that is said exactly the, you know the more unsaid the more unseen is uh you know sparks our imagination and uh, and uh, creates new possibilities in yeah. our in our uh you know minds and that's um that's much more exciting than exactly. showing something graphically and and stealing your imagination as yeah. Chris as Chris Tammy writes in his book that you know he, we feel he feels cheated when uh, when everything is explicit right. and you're told how to feel with the music yeah. as well. <laughs> so um, so yeah, like no, that's. Let's talk about, yeah, let's, let's, talk, about let's talk about something else. No, I think that I definitely agree with you, but uh, you see that a lot of um, in a lot of Hollywood 
studio films too, where they're like hyper explaining things and they're kind of spoon feeding, uh, you know, the characters, a backstory and their information to the audience. And they're like, they're just telling you everything so explicitly. They're not leaving any yeah. mystery. You don't have your own experience with it. But in terms of your, you know, your films, I definitely want to talk about, you know, several of them that really kind of touched me. Um, so after, after film school, um, you've made several films in different capacities and shorts. I mean, as a writer, producer, director, but one film that I saw was the one day in Whitechapel, that short, that film. So I remember seeing it and uh, it just kind of gripped me because I know I didn't have, I grew up mostly, I guess, in the US and I didn't really have that experience that uh, Lauren, who's, you know, the protagonist of that film that that she had. So what what kind of compelled you and was that related to any sort of experiences you came across during your time in London? Was that inspired by a different, um, you know, uh, by that experience or how did that how did that really come about? Yes. So that was uh, One Day in Whitechapel, a short fiction film that is inspired by my own experience of political activism where we would go uh you know there was there were two camps there were the racist kind of um edl the english defense league uh, mm -hmm. in one instance for example marched through uh muslim neighborhoods in london and in the rest of the uk to tell the immigrants to go home especially the muslim immigrants mm -hmm. and it's very provocative um and then the anti-racists and United Against Fascism, groups like that, do a countermarch on the same day on the same street. Yeah. And then there is a few hundred policemen, if not a few thousand, depends on the, the size of these uh, right. demonstrations, in the middle. And so this uh, used to happen. It still happens uh, every now and again, but it used to happen. And then, uh, you know, right before, around the time when I wrote One Day in Whitechapel, and then uh, some of my friends were getting arrested. Uh, the anti-racists were getting, were fighting with the racists after the protests, yeah. you know, on the back streets, and they were getting arrested. And and then you would have to do a bit of fundraising for lawyers for the for our uh, you know our side of the fence. Mm, right. And um, and sometimes we had conversations like, is it possible to start a conversation with the racists? And uh, and the answer was always no. A good punch up is better, you know. Yeah. And so that uh, inspired me uh, to think about, is it possible to, to have a conversation to, with the other mm -hmm. side of the barricades and what would it sound, what it would feel like, what it would sound like, what, what is, you know, and, uh, and a conversation again, that it may, was not possible in real life. I created it, uh, you know, you can say you could, you could argue is contrived, but that's all right because I'm trying to create in fiction what is almost feels impossible in in real life, which is a mm. conversation between the you know the white working class or the yeah. you know the racist side to and the immigrant Muslim side that uh, usually just uh, you know are aggressive towards each other. Yeah. No, I don't. I don't think it's contrived. I mean, I think I think um, I mean the the person that she eventually does have that conversation with. He was quite uh, reluctant at the beginning to even um, sort of pull her badge, right? I mean, he would, they were kind of threatening her, uh, you know, in that stairwell. And then he was kind of the one that uh, you thought uh, he, if anyone has a conscience out of, out of these people, it's probably this guy. But I think that that is definitely interesting. So then when you, um, when you were kind of working, you know, with those actors, I mean, what was the cat, what is your casting process? Like, how do you, uh, do you want people to um, put themselves on uh, on video? Do they audition? I mean, how can someone be in, in one of your uh, films? So I like to um, cast non-actors where possible. Um, mm. And uh, because, again, you know, from taking from uh, some of the Iranian directors I admire, because uh, and then you look for people who are themselves, because you, you you can't expect a non-actor to be somebody else. It's very mm. hard. Right. So you look for people and in, in terms of actors, you know, I had young people who were aspiring actors in London. It was very tough for one day in Whitechapel. And what surprised me again was that um, the some of the, you know, English guys who were supposed to be skinheads, they were ashamed 
of being racist. They oh, were like, yeah. we don't want to play racist. I'm yeah. like, yeah, man, but you want to be an actor, don't you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I was like, the film is about racism. It's about yeah. overcoming it. It's not, yeah. you know, but they were so afraid. I think they were teenagers and they were afraid of, you know, like coming across in their careers as yeah. bad guys or racist. And they, you know, <laughs> they, they were stigma attached to that. So that was kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, and then with the teenagers, yeah, they were theater actors, young actors. So I, I took them as non-actors and then got some theater workshops. I workshop them usually before as much as possible. Mm. It was harder with the, with the one day in white chapel because the actors were, um, young, but a little, let's just say they were too, um, the lead actor was like a model. And then she, you know, she was, uh, <laughs> let's say she she was being paid a lot for the for advertising and then she wasn't really sure what to expect in a independent film mm-hmm. whereas the girl playing parise fatima girl playing in uh, sandstorm she was much more like humble and really it's not it's not even she i don't know if she understood what the opportunity meant and neither did i i mean i didn't know where sandstorm would lead yeah. to it's just that she was such a she was such a good listener. She took instructions so well and so seriously. And you know, she's the only teenager. I asked in auditions, "What is unique about you?" I asked questions like, "What books do you like to read? What's unique mm-hmm. about you? What's your favorite film? What's your hobbies?" and things like that. And she said, "What's unique about me is I don't own a mobile phone." And that really oh, wow. stayed with me. I've never yeah. met a teenager who doesn't own a mobile phone in the twenty first yeah. century. And, um, and then she didn't even go to school nor meet her friends to be in character in those two Mm. weeks. Wow. That really blew me. I was like, wow, that, you know, so there's that kind of dedication to a next level. Whereas the London kids were very much like, oh, can we go now for a walk or is it over (laughs) now? And, you know, so they, I don't think they, they didn't take it that seriously, which is fine. They were kids, you know? So I like to work with non-actors. I like to workshop them. I like them to understand the, you know, backstories and things like that. And I want, I, then I ask them questions about their real lives, which they can incorporate into their character. Hmm, interesting. So then um, when you think about like, I guess you're directing your process of directing, I mean, you've directed things that you've written. You've also worked and uh, collaborated with others that are directing and then you're producing. So when you direct, do you, um, would you say you're, would you describe yourself as quite a hands-on director? I mean, based on the questions you were asking, um, you know, in Sandstorm, it seems like the answer is yes. But do you, do you feel like when you're directing an actor that their, their job is really to, um, uh, to bring themselves to the part? Or do you feel like you have a, a role in being kind of an acting teacher and shaping their performance? I mean, where do you sort of stand in that, how hands-on you are as, as a director in terms of actors? I like to see it as a collaboration, but I think the actors have to be mature or understanding that as a collaboration for it to work. Mm. Uh, collaboration meaning like giving them some leeway or, uh, you know, possible um, in the workshop, you know, improvising, making, let, allowing them to make their own lines before, yeah. the, of course, before the shoot um, and things like that. So, um, but in terms of language, cinema language and style, I, you know, it's very hard. Like, for example, the Pakistani actors, they don't, they've not seen like uh, uh, that many independent world cinema type Iranian films, for example. And so they, I had to uh, request them to watch some films and to understand the kind of acting I was looking for, which is very different from the language that they're used to in theater or Pakistani TV, for example, which is very mm. melodramatic and right. uh, telenovela. So, so that, uh, you know, to take away the, um, to strip it down, uh, the, the dramatic elements of their mm. performances. Yeah. If, if they understand that bit, that's my only like, uh, you know, biggest kind of, request from them and then everything else i am pretty much open to collaborating and you know some of the lines they made up themselves mm-hmm. some of the suggestions some of the you know we, we play, play games theatrical type games oh really where they uh, where they workshop their own characters oh wow interesting so then you also you mentioned about 
kind of you know using non-actors at times for sort of parts that call on uh, to I'll call on them to be themselves but when you look at something like a dog like Zahida um I mean that uh that is another one that really impacted me I mean uh, this is the story of the first female taxi driver in Pakistan I think she became a, a driver in uh, maybe 1992 or 1993 so how did you how do you come across that that story i mean that, that was in that was in uh, Rawalpindi, right in pakistan yeah um so I, because uh, being a political activist i was uh, kind of a news junkie for for a long time and even now so a lot of things i come across through the you know mainstream media and she was actually already a uh, driving being the only female driver for 20 years plus at wow. that time and now there's more drivers and pink taxis and all kinds of ideas in pakistan nowadays but in those days um she was the only one and so she was already a local legend and she mm. so you know when i read about her in international press i don't remember the B bbc maybe um you know she uh, then i realized that you know she, there's already little videos about her in local pakistani newspapers online and all kinds of things and yeah i contacted her through a pakistani journalist but then i realized when i actually met her in person i realized that she's such a character and she's so <laughs> open to playing to camera yeah wow and that's that was i think the key in documentary i, I we do believe now that there is casting in documentary as well and it's all about the casting like uh someone can have an incredible story and they may not be able to tell it really well or someone may have uh not such an incredible story but they may be an incredible character that mm -hmm. can uh lead us uh, you know through a half hour doc for example no definitely and then also that uh I mean, there were comedic moments like between her and her, you know, daughter that came up. And I'm sure that that I, I wonder if that kind of caught you off guard in terms of your expectations. But she was such a um, and is such a strong woman. I mean, she's taking on, um, you know, she's widowed and she's taking on these both parental roles for her daughter. And then she's also she's also a, like I would describe her as a go getter. I mean, she's networking uh, in her downtime. She's taking on a very risky role she's mentions that the risk include uh you know one of them includes kidnapping she's talking with a male customer she's going to the union meetings and she's holding her own did you expect i mean you knew you saw you know bits and pieces of her before you actually you know decide before you cast her in your doc but did you anticipate that she would be that strong-willed and uh, that sort of independent in her um in her demeanor no i I know that, you know, lots of Punjabi women are very strong and uh, work in the fields and do many things outdoors that, are, you know, that's not seen in mainstream media. Mm -hmm. I know that I knew that, but, um, but I think there were many elements that surprised me even more. She was more like a man. She had, and she says it, I think in the beginning of the film that she has learned to act like a man in order to oh, yeah. survive in a man's world. And, um, and even her demeanor was like that. Uh, and, you know, I really liked that she was a hustler, a survivor. And I feel like there was a part of me, that's how we related to each other so well, that there's mm -hmm. a part of me which is also a hustler and a survivor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, and I brought, and we, you know, kind of fed each other the energy to bring those elements out. Uh, she became fearless. I spent enough time with her that she was comfortable with me. And of course, you know, was even comfortable enough to cry um, and, you know, recite poetry for her husband and things like that. So there was a yeah. soft side, uh, you know, motherly, grandmotherly side. And and then there was the, the strong uh, exterior shell as well. What was her response? I mean, uh, to the film, I mean, did she feel like you portrayed her? accurately in the way that she wanted to be or did you think that do you see um you know did she see that maybe that's not uh, did she kind of claim that she has a different identity than maybe what she saw in the film no she cried and she we watched it with her daughter and um her other daughter the elder um, elder daughter as well uh, with, with the grandchildren as well and she cried and she thought it was beautiful wonderful <laughs> I think in our culture, there's a, there's a thing, um, a blind girl once said to me in a school where my mom was voluntarily teaching, she said, I was filming her and she's of course blind. And she said to me, you're stealing my soul. And it, it just, wow. it, 
I just turned off the camera and I just didn't know what to think. And I, I just thought, oh my gosh, this, this is a really interesting understanding of how the lens captures another human being and how the eyes are the windows to the soul, but then what is the lens? Mm. And um, and so now I'm kind of moving away from documentary because I just can't, I mean, sooner or later I would like to make more documentaries, but I just can't come to terms with the fact this responsibility of stealing someone's soul. Wow. Um, of course, it's different even when they want to be filmed, but the but the power dynamic is is imbalanced because the person filming has more power than the person being right. filmed. And that's the bottom line that I can't come to terms with. With actors, it's different because they want to be in front of the camera more yeah. than you want them to be yeah, in front of exactly. camera. Yeah. So that's slightly different. Um, but yeah, so so that was my. Uh, and of course, I made other documentaries and and I produced documentaries. And yeah. you know, there were some issues with release forms and you know these kind of things, which really, I don't know, can be you know sometimes they can't be solved. Yeah. No, that, uh, wow, that was, uh, man, that's making me emotional. I mean, the eyes are the windows of the soul. I think that the portrayal of, I mean, someone like Zahida, I mean, I think when women see that in Pakistan, maybe they're living in, you know, more rural communities. I think that is definitely an empowered empowered documentary. I mean, I'm sure that that's made many, you know, little girls that have seen it confess to their parents their own dreams and what they want to do. And I think that's really powerful. I mean, that truly is the power of film, in my opinion, is to empower others. And I think that doc really did that. Um, I mean, it did that for me and I'm a man. So that's that's something. So then when you, in terms of, you know, working with others in the collaboration, I mean, we talked about the collaboration with, you know, Mr. Merchant, but then um, in The Watchmaker, I mean, that was a documentary that you produced, right? I mean, I think the director was, I think their name was Embleton. So how does that, how does that, um, how does that kind of get in your psyche in terms of wanting to produce, um, you know, that doc? I mean, what, what did you, did you find that story compelling? Was it a conversation with Embleton? I mean, how did you get involved in that project? So uh, with producing, I think first I was coming from film school, so I had a very good understanding of distribution or where short films could go and how short filmmakers can raise their profiles. So that was one thing. And the second thing was I was uh, kind of quick at making funding applications here and there and, you know, sometimes getting my own funding applications from Arts Council England and uh, places like that. So so people came to me because they saw me as a natural hustler and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, kind of active doer yeah. of things. And uh, and when they were lost or stuck. So uh, Cecile uh, and I started working on a project called a documentary film about Baluchi Shirvastav, who is a multi-instrumentalist uh, sitar player, Indian sitar player based in London. Mm. And um, so we bonded over that. While that film was going on, um, Cecile had some material she had shot and she came with me to uh, with it and said, what can, you know, I don't know what to do with it. I'm stuck with it. And and that's how a lot of my, uh, you know, short yeah. film producing started yeah. like that, where I was the problem solver. I came on board as um, a problem solver, someone who helped the filmmaker to finish the film and to help find its uh, kind of, uh, you know, place in the world as in online platforms and festivals. And so the watchmaker did really well internationally. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, You know, it went to three A-list festivals, Hot Dogs and South by Southwest and Doc Leipzig. And uh, then now it's bought by, you know, other online platforms, which is a good life for a short film. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's about this very eccentric um, Iranian guy who uh, is like a dropout from Oxbridge and yeah. he now fixes watches, but really it's about his loneliness and overcoming you know, depression. So it's a story from my local area. It's a story of an immigrant and um, of, you know, a a man with a very interesting view on our relationship to time. Yeah. That's what really interested me. By the way, all these films, The Watchmaker is online on the Atlantic Mm -hmm. and um, Al Jazeera Jazeera English was Zahida. Zahida is also on um, the Journeyman Pictures um, 
YouTube page where anyone can watch it. And when it was on Al Jazeera English, we had more than just the trailer had more than 20 million views. And yeah. over the period of less than a month, you know, I got thousands and thousands of like uh, messages via Al Jazeera English Facebook wow. page kind of uh, that really, you know, okay, a few were negative, but out of more than 5,000 messages, I didn't read all of them, but some of them were, you know, just really inspiring. Like fathers yeah. were writing saying, I have daughters and, you know, this, this inspired all of us in the family and things like that. Yeah. Um, so, so that was, uh, you know, cause sometimes coming out of film school, especially, you know, film school, world cinema, film school, mm-hmm. which, you know, people think, oh, I only want to make certain kind of film. I don't care what the world thinks. But actually, this film, Zaida, was more mainstream, as in it went on TV. And, mm-hmm. you know, and then the 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 bonus of that is that you have, uh, you reached, reach out to millions of people that would have never watched something like that. And, yeah. and then, you know, uh, so that is really rewarding in a different way. Yeah, it's, it may not be you know high art or go to you know some uh, obscure a-list festival but it 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 you know it reaches millions of people and they have an immediate response to it so that was really um yeah. a different kind of experience no it is it is high art um and it is really powerful when you when you think about the different um I guess the roles, because Zahida, you not only did you direct that, you cast that, you also were the camera woman. So does that, uh, yeah, and the producer. So does that, um, does being behind the camera, does that kind of change the way that you think you would have made the film? Um, You know, if you weren't, what what impact did that have on the process? So being behind the camera is just the most amazing thing because you are, it is your POV. So literally the point of view of the artist, we're not talking metaphorically or, you know, I'm talking literally the eye of, uh, you know, the beholder. So, so it's the way you look at things. And, and I think that you can, the the closest you can be to an artist is when they are filming themselves, Mm. just like the painter, when they paint themselves and not have an army of, you know, assistants painting for them. So, um, so yeah, it's and then you you have this sensitivity to to your subject, to to surroundings, to how you want to observe and how you know all of these things. So if I had got a DP, they wouldn't have first of all fit in the taxi because this was small, That's and true, yeah. secondly, uh, you know they, their their cinematography may have been more uh, visually prettier, hmm. but uh, the intimacy and yeah. the way of looking, for example, the poem she recites about her husband, yeah. the prayer in the back of the taxi, these kind of things, you know, sometimes I wonder if, uh, yeah, it's just, uh, it's something intimate. Yeah. And also when she recites that poem, uh, when she's at his grave site, I mean, that is, that's also another powerful moment that you captured so then um and again like the watchmaker i i love i think it's a very existential portrait of chaos and time and the universe and it has a almost like a five easy pieces type of feel like i really enjoyed it so then um i guess looking back as we as we kind of wrap up because um you know i hope i've echoed this but i really love your films. I mean, I think that they really, um, you know, touch me, the documentaries, the more um, narrative uh, films as well. So then as you kind of look back at, I guess, Sandstorm, which is the current project that you've been talking about more recently, I think, um, did you, um, when you think about awards, I guess, because I mean, you mentioned the sort of the wins at Holly Shorts and Flickers, which has, you know, made you um uh, eligible for the academy awards i mean is that is that something that ever um crossed your mind as to, in terms of uh something that you wanted to do was it ever an impetus for anything or is it does it just is it just one of those things that kind of feels good because you can see the impact of it on audiences um when you're making something you don't i don't really uh, think where it could go because you know somebody said to me oh why did you make sandstorm exactly 20 minutes but you know you could have slowed it down a bit more and i was like yeah but certain festivals it's true there is a strict criteria as to the length of the film so for example a short film in the official can competition has to be 15 minutes or less and uh, that automatically took us out of that uh you know opportunity so, so 
you have to, as a producer, keep in mind of these small things, the, you know, the, the practicalities of where it's going to go, because ultimately mm. you're not making it for, for it to live under your bed. Yeah. But <laughs> apart from that, um, in terms of awards and things, they came as a surprise, to be honest. The fact that it's gone to, you know, it's been expect- accepted into more than 60 festivals already. And, wow. um, and you know, sold uh, to Canal Plus and The New Yorker. By the way, it's available to watch on The New Yorker screening room mm-hmm. uh, in the United States and in many countries uh, around the world. So, yeah, it, it surprised me because... Um, Maybe I was a bit of a dreamer and I thought that my language was very art house. And mm. I thought, especially at the time of uh, the Venice premiere, I imagined that I was very much in line with uh, the Iranian cinema I had been watching. But then when I had the Sundance premiere in January, I started to think, oh, okay, well, maybe the language is actually more popular than I had imagined it. Mm. Um which is not a, you know, it's not a bad thing. It's just that uh, you you get inspired by certain things and then your output could be something completely different. And I had right. grown up on American TV as well as, you know, Bollywood and stuff. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, Sandstorm is, uh, is hard to pin down because it has a few styles and almost touching upon magical realism in terms of the the last scene and the scarf, the snake mm-hmm. scarf scene. Yeah. Um, so, so, so yeah, it depends on, I think the language, but also in terms of awards, I think it's also the zeitgeist, you know, with, with the Oscars, it's very much like what's important, what's political, uh, you know, there's many other, th- uh, elements involved. So to all the filmmakers listening out there, I think it's not really, it's not that your film, you know, it's your film can be really, really good, but it may not just be the right time in the right place. Right. Uh, for example, if I had made, you know, Zaida 10 years before that, it wouldn't have got the 20 million views, uh, you know, that it did in Al Jazeera English. So it's really, there's there's a time and a place where, where people are ready to kind of uh, receive a certain kind of story or it resonates with the times and it's not necessarily about journalism. Like, for example, if there's floods going on or the Ukrainian war, of course, there's more films about the Ukrainian war yeah. uh, in festivals now and, you know, in cinemas uh, they will be. But but I'm not talking about that kind of a thing. I'm talking more like um, about thematically and uh, in terms of resonance and the zeitgeist. So, so I think the awards and those things are really sometimes to do with that and sometimes to do with language and and uh and just uh luck <laughs> yeah well um well whatever it is i mean people are definitely ready to receive uh sandstorm now and i'm, I'm so um proud of the global attention it's received and i think it's really well deserved and um i really enjoyed talking with you and and uh talking about your works thank you so much for doing this thank you so much for uh, having me and it's been a great chat thank you